Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. I have to ask, is Marjorie Taylor Greene now part of the Republican establishment? Well, I think, Brian, that she's fallen between two bar stools. She's neither an establishment person, nor is she a member in good standing of the House Freedom Caucus. What she is, though, I think, is uh, a person with far-right beliefs who has become a very powerful member of the Republican Party. Yeah, and I think what we learn from her tells us a lot about the Republican Party writ large. That's um, been my theory of the case for a long time now, that Green, who by all rights uh, should have been kind of kicked to the curb or put in the Star Wars bar of Republican outliers slowly, first by her fundraising ability and then by her association with Trump, became a favorite of Kevin McCarthy and soon vaulted really to be a, a big power player within the GOP. That's Robert Draper there, staff writer and domestic correspondent at The New York Times and the author of several books, most recently, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. What a title. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive, where this week we're going inside Congress. Marjorie Taylor Greene was most recently in the news because she was kicked out of the far-right House Freedom Caucus. But let's be clear, she wasn't kicked out for being moderate. She was ejected for calling fellow lawmaker Lauren Boebert a bitch and for working with Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. You know, the Georgia Congresswoman first gained national attention for her conspiracy theories, for her QAnon friendliness. But now that she's in office, she's had a couple of years in Congress, let's be clear, it's not as if she has dramatically changed. She still wants to use her power to pass bills, to criminalize trans care, to impeach Joe Biden, and to halt all immigration for four years. Many people view this as a very dangerous and radical agenda. But here's the thing. In the current fractured GOP-controlled House, MTG has emerged as a surprisingly canny political operator. So, Robert, let me bring you back in. Let's talk about that. You've been doing reporting about this for years. You've interviewed MTG just in the past few days. How has she evolved in the past couple of years? It goes sort of step by step, as you've alluded Uh, Brian, she came into Congress, seems almost by accident. The local press paid very little attention to her until she uh, was about to win her primary. By the Mm -hmm. time they focused attention on her, she was facing a weak Democratic opponent who then dropped out. Still, uh, her uh, frequent and fairly recent social media posts relating to QAnon, relating to how Nancy Pelosi should be executed for treason, uh, made her a pariah from the moment that she came to Washington. And Republicans wanted nothing to do with her. Democrats were disgusted by her. And and very soon, really a month into her 
being a member, succeeded in having her removed from her two committees. At that point, you would have figured mm. that Green would have just been, you know, left to mumble with herself. But instead, she raised a ton of money off of her being kicked off of those committees and began to tour around the U.S., began to promote her proximity and loyalty to Donald Trump. And before long, it became clear to Kevin McCarthy, who was aching to be Speaker of the House, that he had better placate her. And he mm. began to do so, promising her plum committee assignments, having her sit in on top-level policy meetings. And so she, in turn, repaid the favor when the Republicans just barely won the majority in 2022 by pronouncing herself an ally of McCarthy and actually whipping in support of his bid for the speakership. And I say as the really important thing, convince Donald Trump to call other individuals who are holding out, saying basically, knock it off, Kevin's our guy. And so uh, <laughs> McCarthy said, after all of this, I'm never going to leave this woman. And so she's been at the table. She has gotten good committee assignments, and uh, she's had a real influence on which bits of legislation come to the floor. It sounds like she was able to convert her pariah status into popularity, right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And, and another thing happened, too, along the way, Brian, even as she came to be regarded as more of a serious person, it actually became a self-fulfilling prophecy to the degree that she stopped viewing the mainstream media in adversarial terms. Now is far more accessible than she'd ever been before. I had interviewed her a lot for my book, um, but she told me after McCarthy became speaker that she no longer wanted to use phrases like enemy of the American people and fake news, that she didn't see any fruit to having a kind of um, adversarial relationship with the press. And um, she has also begun to talk more to middle-of-the-road Republicans instead of regularly demonizing them on Twitter. So she's, I hesitate to say, um, begun behaving like an adult because she still espouses extreme positions, particularly as regards transgender individuals and matters relating to the border. But it, at least in terms of how she comports herself within her conference, she's, uh, she's definitely evolved. Yeah, your point about her accessibility to the media is really interesting. Uh, she was on 60 Minutes, interviewed by Leslie Stahl, and here's what she said about some of her extreme views. When I'm outspoken about it and I take my stand or my position, the first reaction is Marjorie's crazy, Marjorie's extreme, Marjorie's a right-wing extremist, and then what will happen is my colleagues will go back home to their district and their own constituents are coming up and saying, are you supporting Marjorie? Do you agree with Marjorie? Have you co-sponsored Marjorie's bill? And then they find out, oh, maybe she's not crazy, and then they end up agreeing with me. She's kind of on to something. I mean, I mean, one can make too much of this because it's not a scientific survey, uh, but the reality is that the activist base of the Republican Party, the people most likely to show up to town halls, the people most likely to call into members of Congress to their offices the, uh, to confront them at, at uh, public events, are those people who are supportive of Donald Trump and, by extension, of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so, yes, they're the loudest voices in the room. They're the ones that you hear. Now, they're not the only voters, but they're the ones who reliably will show up. And and right. so that does have an influence. And, and uh, a lot of her colleagues wish that she wouldn't talk in the manner that she does. They wish, frankly, that she would go away. But they know hmm. as well, they've come to learn that she is representative of the activist faction of the Republican Party that happens to be very MAGA-oriented. And, and so in a way, whether they like it or not, she provides a kind of litmus test as to what the base is thinking and feeling. 
So help us get into her head, if you can, Robert. What do you think really drives Marjorie Taylor Greene and what has been surprising about talking to her? Well, I think, look, I I think (laughs) this may sound banal, um, Brian, but like a lot of human beings, she looks for meaning in her life. And uh, and I think that some people have made the miscalculation about Green that all she wants is attention. I do think attention is important to her, but I don't think that that's all. I think that she also wants to have an impact on America, uh, uh, whether you or I or others like it or not. Um, she is of the view that America has gone wayward, that the America that she and the rest of us are living in now is not the America that she recognizes, not the America that she has loved. And, and so I think she wants to make things happen. I think that she wants to get legislation passed. She has, she made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. She believes that that just means a Christian who loves this country. Um, but she also acknowledges that it's um, someone who believes that Christianity should be at the forefront of American life, including American policymaking. That's what she wants. And uh, and so I think that um, con- uh, not always consciously, but in you know the, the, the sort of 30,000 foot sense is what she's trying to achieve in America. You say there are lawmakers, GOP lawmakers, who wish she'd go away, wish she wasn't part of the party. Wishing, of course, won't make it so. But when they say that, I assume they're saying that quietly or privately. I mean, are any of them willing to say it publicly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they don't say it publicly because then, of course, they'll get the phone calls. Right? They'll get the they'll they'll get grief from their constituents, even from people they've never heard of. They could even get death threats, and and I'm not making light of that. I mean, that that kind of thing can happen. It's uh, There's nothing fruitful for them to uh, to say on a TV camera, God, uh, what, was, what were the people in the 14th District of Georgia thinking of when they elected this woman? Please, please nominate somebody else next time. That's that's simply not going to happen. Right. That's, that's true. When, when it comes to Marjorie Taylor being off the Freedom Caucus, fill us in on what happened. Apparently, she called another GOP lawmaker, Lauren Boebert, an ugly word. Yeah, there's been a lot of friction between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene almost from the moment that they both came in through the class of 2020, both as freshmen, Boebert from Colorado, uh, Greene from Georgia, both of them with zero legislative or political experience, and both of them very much in the kind of you know performance artist wing of, of the Republican Party. And Greene has said to me that from the outset, she attempted to help Boebert both when it came to staffing and when it came to fundraising, but that they never were able to develop collegial relations. She felt like there, mm. that from Boebert's camp, there was a lot of backbiting and, and uh, snarky comments about her. So it it's never been uh, it's never been substantive. It's always been personal. But it, as Boebert took sides with Matt Gates and with the House Freedom Caucus in uh, in being united in their opposition to Kevin McCarthy, I say united with the asterisk of Jim Jordan, who in a lot of ways is the godfather of the Freedom Caucus and therefore I guess gets a pass in all of this, they found themselves on the opposite side of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was unflagging in her support of McCarthy and, and has made comments favorable to McCarthy and to whatever the Republican leadership is doing, which is just not what the Freedom Caucus is up to. So you could argue that there were there was a substantive disagreement between those two, and yet it also is something you could say about Jordan. 
In the end, this is a personal thing. And Green also has made clear, I have to say this, Brian, I've written it in my book, but it otherwise really hasn't been reported on. Green has been open and um, taking to task uh, the the House Republicans, who in 2017, with a Republican president, with a Republican majority in the Senate, could have run the table and could have done all, a whole bunch of things, in her view. And she said they shat the bed. You know, and, and that goes with the Freedom Caucus. Nothing was ever good enough for them. They they said no to everything. I want to be a serious legislator. So fast forward to the present. Now they have the majority. And Green has been open in saying to the party of no within the Republican Party, when are you guys going to be satisfied? Do you ever want to get anything done? And she's essentially said, you know, you're, you're nothing but an exalted fight club. And um, <laughs> so the, that friction on top of the personal animus between her and Boebert has led to, you know, where we are now to her being booted out. When you cover all this for a living, do you feel like you're covering like middle school fights? <laughs> yeah, I've never seen this level of, of schoolyard, schoolyard taunting. And juvenile misbehavior uh, that I've seen amongst these Republicans. And and uh, and I have to say, you know, you'll recall, Brian, when there was discussion amongst the House Republicans in 2021 about whether or not to remove Liz Cheney from her leadership position as head of the conference chair and secret meeting the House Republicans did to air their dissatisfactions with Cheney, while Cheney herself sat there, I have the recording of that and have listened to it, and it's it's really amazing to listen to them. I mean, they 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 sound like a bunch of babies. You know, one of them, Ralph Norman, had had said, you know, it's like you you look up at the stands and you see your uh, your girlfriend cheering for the for the other team, and somebody yelled out, "She's not your girlfriend." And uh, <laughs> but I mean, that, I I've. I have talked to a lot of Democrats who have engaged in real intra-party disputes, but it's never yeah. been as juvenile, as, as sophomoric as that. Never as juvenile as it is with today's GOP. All right, quick break here. Much more with Robert Draper on the other side. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter. We're going behind the scenes right now about the House GOP, about Marjorie Taylor Greene as a force within the House GOP. And I'm talking with Robert Draper of The New York Times. Uh, Robert, in, in your book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, you describe where she came from, so to speak, her origin story. What was Marjorie Taylor Greene doing before she was elected to Congress? Yeah, well, she worked at her family-owned construction company. It was founded by her father. She also had her own CrossFit gym that she owned. If you had sat next to her on an airplane, Brian, she would have reminded you of every blonde, suburban, conservative, Southern woman you'd ever met. She was pretty apolitical. Uh, mm. That began to change when Trump became president. She felt an immediate affinity for him, felt then correspondingly that the so-called Russia collusion hoax 
proved that uh, not only were people out to get Trump, the elites were, but also that the media couldn't be trusted. That gave her, the, in turn, a permission structure to, to use the classic phrase, do her own research, which meant going down the rabbit hole and falling into the QAnon uh, community. And she began to post on on Facebook and on YouTube, became, you know, had a, had a significant following. And these were the, you know, the, the things you referenced before about that um, the wildfires of California were, were perhaps started by space lasers that were orchestrated by the famous Jewish family, the Rothschilds, uh, that some of these mass shootings were false flag operations, that 9-11 wasn't real, that uh, Barack Obama- I'm sorry, that 9-11 wasn't real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. The nine eleven was staged. That the, the in particular the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. She didn't believe it. And uh, uh, and don't ask me why. It, it, I'll have to like you know. Yeah, no, it makes you crazy trying to understand yeah. and unpack the so crazy. So she did all of this stuff, and she would go to these conferences where people would espouse the same thing. She would go to the border. So she she was becoming a real activist. She also began going to Washington to show up to uh, harass the offices of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of Nancy Pelosi, uh, but also to request meetings from Republican senators. And this was the interesting thing. She'd go to these, you know, she'd go to the offices of her two Republican senators in Georgia, for example, and they would give her the hi hat. They, they would ignore her. They, they, they'd show her the door. Same with when she'd go to Marco Rubio's office and Ted Cruz's office. She came to feel really slighted as an American conservative taxpayer about this. And finally, basically she said, screw it. I'm going to run for the House. And mm. I'm, I'm going to go there and make a difference, not only because these people won't give me the time of day, but also because, frankly, I don't think they're doing all that they should be doing. You know, she was a self-funder because her uh, she was a millionaire as a result of her construction company, had to be taken seriously, but but was running against a woman, Karen Handel, who uh, was a favorite amongst conservatives, was a loyalist to Trump, didn't look like she was going to win. Then another district opened up, the 14th district, and essentially as a carpetbagger, she moved moved into it, but began knocking on doors, talking to people. It's a much more conservative district. They took to her right away. She swamped the field. Uh, it was just as she was going into the runoff of her primary that news outlets, including CNN, began to put out some of her more alarming social media posts, which had been cataloged in opposition research, but nobody was interested, not locally, not nationally. They didn't give you know a damn what it reminds me of a little bit. It reminds me okay. of George Santos a little bit. That the yeah. the info was there, but it did not actually get amplified to an to a local or national audience before she won. And Brian, you've covered this before yourself. Some of this bespeaks the um, how strapped for resources local media is. I mean, this is a far flung congressional district. The major city is Rome, Georgia. There's another one, Dalton, Georgia, but 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 not a big metropolis, a far drive for an Atlanta reporter who already has Senate races to cover or presidential <laughs> to cover. No one paid any attention until it was essentially too late and she had uh, she had it wrapped up. So mm. she did all of this without the support of Trump. But when she won her primary, Trump called her right away. Uh, so did Kevin McCarthy. After those QAnon posts and stuff had had, had been published, Certain um, Republican leaders like Steve Scalise, for example, the whip at the time, the minority whip in the House, denounced Green. But McCarthy held his tongue and she took note of that. And so that, in a lot of ways, formed the basis of the alliance that later came. 
And that alliance is so interesting. And that's what we keep coming back to here, because as you write in the the very uh, introduction to your book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, you write about the tension between the reality-based wing of the Republican Party and the lost-its-mind wing of the Republican Party. You, frankly, are describing a, a candidate, a, a newly elected congresswoman here who who uh, was part of the lost-its-mind wing of the party, um, talking about 9-11 as a hoax, for example. But all of a sudden, the reality-based wing has to find ways to work with the lost-its-mind wing. I mean, this is this is well, a, it's been an extraordinary the, scenario for a few years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, Brian, and it's that, and and so the reality-based wing then became the lost-its-nerve wing. <laughs> it's not that they have to find a way to work with them because they feel like they need to listen to their their uh, considered opinions, etc. It's that Kevin McCarthy, in particular, uh, took stock of the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene was not an outlier; that she represented. Um, a faction of the Republican Party that was not going to go away. That's the Donald Trump MAGA faction. Uh, He came to recognize, McCarthy did, that Green was essentially a spokesperson for that wing. And so it was not out of like personal affection or pity (laughs) or anything else that that he began to court Green. It was that she was the proximate warrior uh, for the MAGA movement. And Mm -hmm. that movement was one that he needed if he wanted to get to the House majority and needed as well if he wanted to maintain the majority. So those are the dynamics. It came to be seen that the lost its mind uh, wing of the Republican Party was where all the action was, was where the passion was yeah. and uh, and wasn't going to go away anytime soon. Still hasn't gone away. Is your impression from from interviewing her and interviewing colleagues that Marjorie Taylor Greene is the same person behind closed doors, um, the same person in private as she is in public? For the most part, she freely admits, at least to me, that she hyperbolizes for effect because that's what wins in the attention economy. Uh, that's what gets you more support, more financial support, et cetera. Behind closed doors, that gets tuned down some, which is not to say that she does not believe what she says. She believes enough of what she says, um, but she she checks some of the hyperbole at the door. And, and she has become a cannier uh, legislative player. She understands parliamentary procedure, who, by the way, uh, some of that was taught to her by Mark Meadows when hmm. she got kicked off of the committees and she wondered what to do with all this abundance of free time she now had. It was Meadows who proactively suggested to her, why don't you gum up the works of the Democratic majority by by doing all these motions? So it's interesting that, that Meadows has played this backstage role in her evolution. She now reads legislation much more carefully. She crafts legislation. She and her, her staff do. You know, her, her chief of staff is this guy, Ed Buckham, who was the chief of staff of Tom DeLay. Now, Tom DeLay, for you know those of your listeners who don't know, was arguably the most powerful Republican in town as the first as the majority whip and later as the majority leader of the House during the Newt Gingrich era and thereafter. And whatever one thinks of him personally was a very, very savvy legislative operator. And, and so mm-hmm. that she brought on a DeLay alum uh, to be her chief of staff indicates to you her desire to get things done and a recognition that she knows what she doesn't know and needs the help of more able people around her. Mm. Um, Since she was sworn in just days before the January 6th insurrection, how has she approached, handled, followed up on the insurrection and on the uh, Justice Department investigation into the attack? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene in this way, I think also is a kind of personification of the 
confusion amongst conservatives yes. uh, relating to January the 6th and other things about it. Because you can hear in the very same paragraph, uh, Green and individuals that she represent first say, what happened at the Capitol was terrible, but after all, the election was stolen and people have a right uh, to react the way they did. Secondly, to say that there actually was nothing that bad at all that took place. It was, as her colleague in Georgia, and Andrew Clyde said, you know, an ordinary tourist event. Third, that there was violence, but as we all know, conservatives never engage in violence. It's the other side that does. So these were Antifa elements who did that. And fourth, finally, that in fact, this was all a, a setup by the feds, uh, perhaps in concert with Nancy Pelosi. And the, the phrase, the feds erection, is one that they've now embraced. So so there's all of that about what took place that day. Then there is what happened to the individuals who participated in it. And Green has been at the forefront of claiming that these people who are arrested, indicted, and uh, either awaiting trial or have already been sentenced are being politically persecuted. Let me take a quick break here. We're with Robert Draper in just a minute. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here on Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Robert Draper of The New York Times. So, Robert, you split your time between the magazine and, uh, and now as a domestic correspondent for The Times. Uh, one of your pieces earlier this year described this governance by chaos, right? And so six months into McCarthy's tenure, he has the help of figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, is it striking that, uh, that he has not been severely challenged for the job, that he has not been pushed out yet? I mean, that was all the talk in January when all this started. I'm glad you asked that question, Brian, because uh, I was talking to a Democratic member of Congress last night about this, and he said, you know, you, you have to, in a way, salute McCarthy because he has already defied expectations. Those expectations were low. The belief was that McCarthy wouldn't last three or four months because among the key things that he agreed to, the key concessions that allowed him to become speaker was that he would allow one person from the Republican conference to stand up and initiate a motion to vacate, which in essence would, would uh, open the door to a vote on whether or not to remove McCarthy, that that could be done at any time. So you'd figure he'd be spending all this time dancing on a razor's edge, and I suppose he has, but there has not been any uh, serious attempt to dethrone him. That's in part, I think, because he has kept the Freedom Caucus at the table. I think McCarthy has shown himself uh, 
frankly, to no surprise to a lot of us who've watched him throughout the years, to be a, a consummate survivor. But uh, but the closer we get to the election cycle and the more influence we see of the MAGA base, I think the more heartburn he's going to have and the more uh, it's going to become obvious that he'll have to choose one side over the other. For that matter, we have an appropriations battle coming up that is almost certain to lead to a government shutdown. I covered this 10 years ago um, when the what was becoming the House Freedom Caucus, it wasn't formalized yet, forced a government shutdown. And, and you know, I remember guys like Raul Labrador saying, you know, nah, it's not that big a deal. But they were they were in a very distinct minority. Nowadays, members of the Freedom Caucus and their base back home say, hell yeah, we should shut the government down. You know, the less we see of the government, the better. And, uh, you know, this is going to disrupt veterans benefits, uh, the opening and closing of parks and other things that that their constituents will soon be howling about. But for the moment there, there seems to be every reason to believe that uh, the far right, the Freedom Caucus and others like them are going to force a shutdown. Mm. In your author's note for Weapons of Mass Solution, which came out last year, you write about your late father, Bob, and how he was a, a lifelong Republican. And uh, by the end of his life, he, he wanted the Democrats to defeat Trump and, and restore some sanity to the Republican Party. Now, you know, a few years into the, the Biden era, um, do you think your father would even recognize this environment anymore? Well. My father, who was indeed a, a diehard Republican, I think he would be uh, deeply despondent about where the Republican Party is, would be hard pressed to find heroes amongst them. On his literal deathbed, he was saying, I hope that Joe Biden becomes the nominee. This was in November of 2019, uh, because mm-hmm. I, I think he and only he in that Democratic field is capable of bringing enough independence on board to defeat Donald Trump, which to my father's mind, was the thing that absolutely needed to happen. It was Mm. Trump, he believed, who had rendered the party unrecognizable. I think that what my father would be chagrined to see is that the removal of Trump from the White House has not moved the Republican Party back into the the GOP he once knew. And now we're in an environment where there's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene as a potential running mate for Trump in the future, a vice presidential candidate in the future. And and she's someone who goes on 60 Minutes and says Democrats are pedophiles. Here's the clip. I would definitely say so. They support grooming children. They are not pedophiles. Why would you say that? Democrats, Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, supports children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Wow. Okay. But my question really is, can't you fight for what you believe in without all that name-calling and without the personal attacks? Well, I would ask the same question to the other side, because all they've done is call me names and insult me nonstop since I've been here, Leslie. They call me racist. They call me um, uh, uh, anti-Semitic, which is not true. I'm not calling anyone names. I'm calling out the truth, basically. Pedophile? Pedophile. Call it what it is. Green, in her 
tete-a-tete with, with Leslie Stahl there, I think offered a kind of master class and, and, or at least a representation in how the extreme right deals with uh, processes and, and otherwise deals with these charges against them of being too extreme. They, they first conflate things. And, uh, and those are enormous and, and offensive leaps of logic that you nonetheless see on the right frequently. The other thing that she did just a few seconds later was uh, instigate a little round of whataboutism. So it's, uh, I mean, to me, the question has always been, you know, well, what do you believe? And they, they would rather not answer that question. They'd rather instead say, well, we do this because that side does that. Well, you don't like the, that side doing that. Is that just to say that we now live in a state of moral anarchy? Or does it mean that uh, you're being a hypocrite here? And Stahl kind of let that one get away from her, I think. So how do you keep your mind clear when covering the Lost Its Mind Party? You know, Brian, I, I, I view as my job um, trying to understand why people do what they do. It's, it's, uh, I admit that it has become increasingly difficult when you're talking to individuals who themselves give conflicting arguments about why they do what they do. I, I gave January the 6th as, as one um, notion, but another one would also be COVID, right? Do they believe vaccines are ineffectual? Do they believe that they're a Chinese bioweapon? You can hear people say conflicting, you know, contradictory things in the same breath. And, and that's a little bit headache-inducing, but I don't think that the um, the solution is to ignore it altogether. And to me, it's a, it's a valuable service to try to understand, you know, the, the, the functioning of our democracy really depends on the health of two robust political parties. And when one party falls ill, it's important to understand why. If that party uh, becomes sort of terminally diseased, then that in turn is going to have effects in our democracy writ large. Hmm. I couldn't have said it better. Robert Draper, thank you so much. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on. And once again, Robert Draper of The New York Times, his most recent book, Weapons of Mass Delusion. I love it as a guide to understanding the modern day GOP. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Seltzer. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Seltzer. Same thing on threads. And you should email us anytime. Send us your feedback, your ideas for future shows. The email address is bstelter at gmail.com. We'll be right back here in your podcast feed this time next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.